trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. Everything with these people is transactional. So even someone who is a pawn, even someone in the process of maybe Chad Daybell, like she was latching on to what he was, quote, preaching to her, right? And her beliefs and these wacky beliefs that, that um, and, and she sought him out, obviously, because she was already believing these things. And he may have encouraged that behavior, but ultimately she's the one that makes the choices to participate in this behavior as well. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Hey, movers. Welcome back to another live episode of Moving Past Trauma. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? Happy Friday, May 19th. Wow, this year is moving, guys. Uh, I gotta tell you, you know, it, it is moving so fast that right before this, I just literally got a call from uh, a lawyer who, who's doing a civil case that I was involved in, and uh, they're like, "Hey, we're <laughs> this thing is finally going to some sort of trial." This is like two years later. It's very odd. Um, I just spoke to the person who has the who has the lawsuit and they were like yeah so i guess we're going to trial so i'm like wow i guess i feel like light years have passed welcome everybody and for those of you that don't know i am collier landry and you are listening to moving past trauma my live version of it i'm here to catch you guys up on all things true crime this week some things that have piqued my interest i had a conversation for a podcast it's uh, episode is yet to be released but I spoke to this uh, woman named Jodine Weber, who was a former um, FBI agent for 22 years. She has a podcast called Caught in My Web uh, that she does via Patreon. And she gives her expert insight into an analysis into her background in journalism, then turned into law enforcement and how that works. And one of the things that we were discussing in, in our recent conversation was, you know, obviously, it was yesterday, Brian Koberger was in, well, he's not in court. He was supposed to be in court today, or I'm sorry, on Monday. But he was officially charged, or he has yet to be officially charged. I'm sorry. He has uh, been indicted, but he has yet to be arraigned. And we were discussing the victims, and a lot of people were calling for uh, the teardown of this, of this student housing in Idaho. And we were discussing the Murdoch trial and how that was so key in the courtroom and how that played out when the jurors were able to walk the actual crime scene and how effective that was in the prosecution's uh, conviction of Alec Murdoch 
or Alec Murdoch, however you pronounce it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Alec Murdoch. And how being able to go through crime scenes uh, is really important for jurors who are facing, you know, they're essentially holding someone else's life in their hands, right? And uh, as you know, Brian Koberger is is innocent until proven guilty. Uh, there has been, <laughs> I was listening to an analysis of it earlier today. There was over 10,000 pictures and something like 9,000 pieces of evidence. And I know that you guys are way more experts on this than I am. I'm just giving my sort of take on all of this. But and this is something that I discussed on my show a couple months ago with Dr. Daniel Slakoff. And the one of the things that the defense essentially said was, is that the um, they, the the absolute sensationalization of this of this case, right? And the media conjecture, the social media conjecture surrounding everything has been um, is one of the reasons why they need so much extra time to really present an adequate defense for Koberger, right? Which makes total sense. I mean, he's facing four counts of first degree murder for the deaths of Madison. Madison, Kaylee, Zara, and Zana, and Ethan, and one count of felony burglary. It's interesting when they stack all these charges up because a lot of people discuss with me with my father's case. Well, why do they put that abuse of a corpse, uh, you know, year and a half charge on there? Well, it makes the murder charge stick. So uh, that that definitely uh, when they add these felony, <laughs> all these charges, they just you know, it's just like Lori Vallow. She had all these other charges, conspiracy charges stacked on top of everything. It's just to make sure that if they are convicted or when they are convicted that the charge that it sticks. Um, but they want to conform, conform uh, they want to comb through all of this evidence because they're looking for exculpatory evidence, which means, if you guys don't know, is exculpatory evidence is evidence that they can use to get him off. So they're looking for evidence that that will say will prove his innocence rather than his guilt and of course the prosecution is like have at it we've looked at all of it i don't know how anyone looks through all this evidence but apparently they have or according to them to find this evidence to get this guy off um i i really every time i look at these these cases that come out now and the complexity that is involved in them even though they're very simple he committed a crime people are people have tragically lost their lives now there's a whole community that's engaged around this, and there's a whole uh, there's a whole um, now a legal process that needs to be carried out, which is arduous at best. And then you have the families and uh, one of the um, I believe it was Mr. Uh, Goncalves, Goncalves, who is uh, Kaylee's father, was basically saying we're ready to bring it to this guy. So they're obviously looking forward to the fight ahead. It's exhausting. It's um, and and with all the conjecture that has been swirling around this case, I their resolve is amazing that these families are holding for the victims. It's very, it's a lot. And you know, Koberger's family who has been drugged through the mud. Now they are going to um, they're kicking the can. Like I said they're kicking the can down the road um, because of uh, all this. You know, just massive amount of evidence who even knows if this trial goes forward this year who who knows what's going to happen but um there's a lot of evidence uh and a lot of place work that is involved let me get some of your comments here uh look what you guys are saying um oh you missed you last time all right 
Yes, hello everybody. Welcome again to all my channel members. Thank you so much. Hilo from Mary Alice from San Diego. So uh, when we last left off, we were uh, last week was obviously the verdict uh, against Lori Vallow, who was convicted of obviously the her role in the deaths of Tylee Ryan and JJ and uh, Tammy Daybell, and then obviously the the conspiracy count as well, and whatever other charges. And what that looks like, and it was this Mother's Day this past weekend, and happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And, uh, you know, it has been interesting to see a pattern of, uh, of bad mom behavior lately. We have, obviously, Lori Vallow would be the kingpin of this. But then we would, <laughs> we have uh, Leticia Stauk, who was just also convicted a couple weeks ago for, uh, the, for the death of her stepson, Gammon, uh, Gannon. And, uh, and now we have this uh, Corey Richens, case which has come up and uh you would think it, it, it i i wonder in a lot of situations when i think about this there's some there's eerily some similar similarities that have to do again they, they all i feel like all of these cases follow a very common thread which i believe is rooted rooted in some sort of narcissistic personality disorder uh some some sort of psychopathy which is a generation of that because i recognize so many attributes in these perpetrators um as i do in my father now again Corey richens is is innocent until proven guilty of course but she for those of you that that know uh that don't know she wrote a book a year after the death of her husband i think she published it in march um, and the book was called, hold on, I have it here, I promise. I believe, oh, no, I guess I don't have it here. I believe it's called We Are Without You. But she wrote this book so children can understand the grieving process of losing a parent or a loved one. Now, I mean, the sense of, of just, well, hypocrisy, irony, I don't know what you would call it, is just um, obviously she has been charged with the death of her husband. And he, uh, his name, hold on here, I have it. His name is Eric, but I can't remember his last name. Oh, geez. Of course, my notes, my notes uh, are not good today. Um, but uh, her husband, so she had, served him his traditional like Moscow mule. He had, I guess they had closed some real estate deal together that they were doing, or he had good news from work. And, and, uh, she claims that she went to, to bed that night and then came in with one of the kids who was having like night terrors or, you know, wanted to be read a story. And then she fell asleep and then went into the room and found him at the keeled over at the foot of the bed and the body was cold. Uh, and, then proceeds to go on and write this book and she's going on television. And this also happened ironically in Utah. Uh, and she, um, she then goes into um, this whole, you know, um, victimization sort of analysis. And it brings me back to when I, I was doing an interview earlier today on another podcast and I was describing the time of when my father was talking to me about my mother uh, leave quote leaving the family right, and there was always this kicking the can down the road of uh, oh when she comes back when she comes back and I'm like well wh are you looking for her dad <laughs> and obviously not but oh yeah you know uh, she she left our family it's it's it you know I know that you're really going through it you know she just left us up up and left us high and dry knowing full well that he ended her life 
So um, I see the exact same thing in this Corey Richens situation. Again, with this sort of gaslighting of, let's say, even the media, gaslighting of the family, gaslighting of, of the public, for example, uh, stringing along law enforcement, prosecutors, all these people. Um, but apparently, <laughs> after she claims all this, one of the obviously damning um, amounts of evidence that is against her is she uh, she had messaged a known um, a known proprietor of illegal wares, as we will say for the censors on YouTube, illegal illegal uh, things, and um, and one of those things was Fent. Uh, we will abbreviate, but it is something that is a very common thing. Uh, the United States is experiencing an opioid crisis right now, and uh, this Fent is something that is very uh, is very prominent and plays a very prominent role in that. And uh, obviously, it, it can stop your heart. <laughs> and the the dosage that they believe that she was asking for was um, yes, was that heart stopping amount. So there are a lot of things that have that have presented themselves there. She was trying to make. Um, amendments to a uh, his will and his trust. And I believe that this this gentleman, Eric, had apparently sort of had claimed that she may have poisoned him before, six months before he something slipped something in his drink. So apparently he he had an awareness of this and he uh, he made some precautions and had a change to trust where she was trying to funnel some money, I believe close to $200,000, sorry, $2 million that she was trying to funnel to, to purchase a house, purchase some real estate. And also uh, there was $125,000 to $150,000 in cash that was in a safe that Eric's sister had control over. But, uh, and apparently Corey had acted out and punched her when she wouldn't give her the money. So there are a lot of factors going on in this case, but I think at the center of this is and what we mustn't lose sight of is that there are three children now without a father and without their mother, which is almost a carbon copy of, of what happened to with, with my father because uh, my mother is taken out of the picture and my father is most certainly going to be incarcerated as he was. Again, and there was three siblings, right? I have a half-sister. I had an, a sister who was adopted from Taiwan before I, uh, six months before my mother's life was taken. And then there was me around the whole time. And those kids now have to, and those families now have to pick up the pieces of this. Again, you know, I talk about these things to to raise awareness about them, to also give you guys sort of a... Um, not a victim. I don't like being called a victim. I don't, I'm, I'm, I was victimized by violent crime. I am most certainly not a victim, but I, uh, uh, but I mean, I guess for, for purposes of that, this is a difference between having a victim mentality and being an actual physical victim of something. Uh, but the, the, the nuance between <laughs> when you have, when you're caught up in the middle and this is, this is true, obviously, for uh, Lori Vallow as well, is when the surviving children or child is caught up between the perpetrator who's committed the offense and then against another member of the family, in this case, my mother, in this case, my father against my mother, it presents a, a very, conundrum is not quite the strong word, 
it puts you in a very serious situation where you there's a lot of self-doubt that goes into it. There's a lot of um, uh, questioning. I certainly experienced this throughout my life, like questioning who I am, questioning where I came from. Am I capable of doing such a thing? And uh, and then there's the external uh, scrutiny that you get from being uh, a victim or, or, or in the center of, of a case like this. Where people are trying to um, excoriate you for your behavior or, or saying things of like, oh, well, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or perhaps that uh, you um, that you can take after these these people who have committed such unspeakable acts in in um, in cold blood, really, and those are things that I think we always have to think about in in, in dealing with. You know, obviously, the mental health aspect of all this, which is something I'm obviously, I'm obviously very, very passionate about, uh, because I know how it's affected me. I know how it's affected me throughout my life, and um, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation. Um, you know, I can remember in, and this is something that I think that Colby Ryan will have to deal with. I know that he's come out and he. Look, in his testimony, he was, you know, obviously angry. And I believe, you know, from what they said in the courtroom, he stared stared down his mother and gave her a look of disgust after he stepped off the witness stand. Yeah, but he was doing things of, of questioning and having suspicion that his, his mother was impersonating his sister and text messages. And, you know, he, he confronted her about the deaths of, the, of them. And, you know, he, how he how he was trying to confront them on why on why his mother felt that she had a religious justification for take for taking these lives if she in fact did that and he's just sort of pleading with her and then something that I experienced my entire life with my father and for those of you who've seen my film Murder in Mansfield you can find it in my web store if you'd like to purchase it or a link below but uh, in Murder in Mansfield when I'm confronting my father uh, there is there was a very, you know, obviously a very poignant discussion that I had with him, which is, you know, why did you do it? Right. And that, in that moment, as you may or may not see in the film is, is ultimately what, um, was ultimately what, uh, what I was looking for and why I did what I did was to get those answers. And so Colby Ryan's life is, is, is going to look like, is going to be very heavily established in pursuit of these answers, he is going to pursue them in a way that hopefully he can come to his own conclusion about what you should do and what works for him. I know there there are several comments that I got from you guys. She was my mother. I wouldn't go visit her for one, all of her lives and la lies and laughing at him on top of killing his siblings. But also, she is not worth working his life around going to go visit in a prison. Also, frankly, I wouldn't want to spend any time in a prison, even as a free person, going to visit her. I hope he works on himself and making his own life happy. All these living victims of Lori and Chad deserve that. Absolutely. All these living victims of Lori and Chad do deserve that. Uh, it is, again, very easy to say, because I feel I, I feel like for a long time I said I would never go visit my father, even though I did. Um, Nothing in the world is ever going to change for Colby Ryan that his mother, A, did this, and B, that his mother is his mother, and his mother was his sibling's mother. 
nothing will ever change that. Nothing will also ever change the fact that that he had really good memories with his mother. I mean, there are I've seen videos of him and I've seen him in the uh, the documentary um, Sins of Our Mother with them, you know, driving to college. I believe he went to Purdue or something. Uh, him, them driving to college and making little silly videos in the car, and he has all these really positive memories with his mother before she crossed into this state of of uh, this messiatic syndrome that she was suffering from, or falling for this you know cult <laughs> that that she was involved in, or just because, or or just literally always had it deep rooted inside and, and ultimately decided to, to commit what I believe was probably one of the worst things ever, a uh, uh, mother against her children. But, um, you know, he, he also has to work through those emotions of having those good times, something that I've had to do a lot of. And, you know, I, I did a video recently, uh, I did an interview on another channel uh, called the fallen state. And I got just a, <laughs> a load of very angry and vitriolic, messages, uh, many people saying some very horrible things, which I won't repeat on this uh, live, but uh, people people excoriating me for my behavior, saying that I could have even caused my mother's, uh, my mother's death because of uh, alerting my mother to my father's philandering, which is obviously not true because she always knew about that, right? But uh, it is very easy for people to sit in a, in a seat of judgment and not understand that, you know, and I was expressing to the host you know, I do have positive memories of my father. That is, that takes a lot of reconciliation to, or, 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 or that is a lot for you to reconcile when you are looking at them as a perpetrator against the most important or important people in your life. And in that case being my mother, but, um, you know, Colby with his siblings, right. And Colby with his, uh, with his family and how the family has been so fractured, uh, um, fractured by this, by this situation and by this violence that they, therefore, um, it, it makes it very difficult to come back together. And that is, a, is precisely the same thing that I experienced because my father had not only committed this horrible crime against my mother, uh, and my family, but also had been accused of committing, other crimes against my uh, my, which I had no idea as a child existed, but against my um, my my cousins on my mother's side, which ultimately which ultimately led to my mother's side of the family uh, disowning me, if you will, and not wanting to have anything to do with my with me in my life because of that happened. Because, and as I explained many times, there are lots of ways that people process trauma and process what they're going through. You try to just do the best you can. Do I think they did the best job? Probably not. But like, I, I don't. I wasn't in their position. I know how angry they were. Uh, a lot of it is people get overwhelmed with circumstances, and probably just bringing a child into their life whose father caused so much pain is just not something they can really handle. And then, unfortunately, is the is one of those ancillary. Uh, I wouldn't say ancillary victims, but ramifications of violence of this nature. This is exactly what Coley Ryan's going through. The same thing. The family has been so fractured and also fractured because of an outside source too. And, you know, one of the things that, that a lot of people ask me and, and something that I held on to for a lot of anger uh, or, or, or that, I, that I felt anger to was that of my father's uh, girlfriend. One of the things that, that served me 
absolutely no good was the fact that uh, I was in a state because okay, we have we have Chad Daybell, right? Who is an who's an outsider of the family that came in, right? And during him coming in, all this quote wacky behavior started with Lori, Lori, right? And you know she drank the Kool Aid, whatever you want to call it. You have this 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 outsider who came in. So for me, it was my father's girlfriend, right? So I immediately blamed her for the cause of my mother's death, right? As I think, <laughs> you know, uh, Colby Ryan could absolutely say the same thing. He could absolutely put that on. Is that it's very easy to blame that external person for the behavior of the other person, uh, of, of the perpetrator, right? So in this case, he goes, well, if Chad didn't come into this situation, then therefore this wouldn't have happened. Much as I said, if Sherry had not come in and been my father's girlfriend, then this wouldn't have happened to my mother. Maybe that's the case. Maybe. But, and this is also something that, uh, this is also something that you just, you just have to, it's a really tough pill to swallow is that the behavior he might have been a, a, a antagonized that behavior out of her, but that behavior was in her to do anyways. And I feel like, and for myself with my father's girlfriend, I didn't understand that my father had had many, many girlfriends before this. This wasn't something new. So I just blamed her for a while when I was a child because I thought, well, if this, if this person hadn't come into my life, or my father's life, and therefore everything would be fine and dandy. When really, <laughs> it wasn't, nothing was fine and dandy, and it would have been someone else, or my father's behavior would have would have occurred against my mother, or for some other reason. It's not like this, that that person was the cause of that. They just were sort of part of the, they were part of the mechanism that, that, that this whole train wreck <laughs> happened, right? They were they were just another cog in the machine, but in a relationship with someone who is suffers from these narcissistic personality disorders, or psychopathy, everything with these people is transactional. So even someone who is a pawn, even someone in the process of maybe Chad Daybell, like she was latching on to what he was quote preaching to her, right? And her beliefs and these wacky beliefs that that um, and, and she sought him out obviously because she was already believing these things, and he may have encouraged that behavior. But ultimately, she's the one that makes the choices to participate in this behavior as well, and cover it up. And and, and people become expendable. They're just somebody that's getting in the way of their happiness. For me, I I believe that well for for. Lori Vallow, it's Tylee and JJ Ryan and 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 uh, Tammy Daybell and her husband Charles and maybe her brother Alex. Like all those people are expendable. All those people are in the way of her true happiness. Um, and and all of those people are coming in the way. And and somebody just mentioned money too. There's also money, of course, that that plays in a lot of these factors because they want that as well. But all of it. It's it's all together. It's not just. I, I I feel like even in the the case of my father, who um he he it wasn't re maybe money was sort of a factor in it, but also the factor was is 
he viewed my mother as an obstacle to his ultimate, to whatever he wanted, right? So I think he just wanted my mother to play ball and let him do whatever he wanted. And when she put her foot down, therefore, he was uh, the, therefore, he, she, she was then expendable to him because he was, she was not validating his behavior. She was not helping him. She was, in fact, uh, in fact, you know, uh, he was, um, the children, uh, I'm sorry, um, my mother was, in fact, creating obstacles for my father. And how I made it through, I have no idea, but I ended up being an obstacle further down, down the road. But <laughs> same thing with Lori Vallow. Like the, the, the children then became obstacles for her to happen. Well, first it was the, the husband, then it was the brother, then it was the children, then it was his, his Daybell's wife. All these people become just, they, they're just expendable. And I understand this sounds like a really foreign concept to a lot of people, and that's absolutely fantastic that it does because you don't want to think like this because not everything is transactional. Things aren't transactional in life with normal people that have relationships and engage with each other. And this took me so long and it's still something even to this day. And this is something that I would say to Colby who probably has grown up seeing this behavior is that it takes me so long to sometimes even in my own life, look at situations in just my normal engagement with people is that I don't have to provide them with some sort of transaction. Interacting with me is, is good enough. I don't have to, I don't have to just provide them with something, some sort of, okay, well you do this for me. I do this for you. Okay. Life doesn't work that way. But when you grow up around these people and you witness this behavior, which I guarantee this wasn't her first time of behavior, is this is something you have to almost, it's almost like retraining your brain because in that mental health sort of aspect of looking at all this is, you know, I often wonder like, can I retrain my brain uh, when I start to think about, or even when I go through my father's letters on this podcast, which I've done many times before, I got to read some more for you guys soon. But uh, everything that I look at is transactional with him, everything. And it's so, it's so interesting because I just think to myself, okay, well, like, where was I, like, where was I, uh, this wasn't something that I, um, that I, I, I thought I grew up with, but maybe I did. I, I don't know. So that is a process of all of this that is going to be something that Colby Ryan is really going to have to is really going to have to to learn um, to sort of retrain his brain in a way because um, he has um, he's he's whether he or not he knows this he's grown up with this and that is a very uh, difficult. It's a very difficult thing to work in. It's a very, very difficult thing to work through, but you got to do it um, because the road ahead is, it's challenging. It is full of self-doubt. It is full of, you know, questions and am I really like this? Could I really be like this? 
Uh, and it's going to take a lot of therapy. Back to the Colby Ryan, Lori Vallow relationship, should he choose to have one. And honestly, I read some of your comments. I know that you guys all are, first of all, let me say this. You guys are all very concerned about this young man. And that's a wonderful thing. And it's so great that you guys, as my audience, it's so great that you guys have compassion for another human being that's been through so much. So I want to say thank you for that because that is, um, that's really cool um, that you guys can be, even though you don't know this person, that you can show support in that way and, and, and understand and recognize. Because a lot of this is, you know, you grow up in this stigma, right? And he's going to forever have to deal with this. And this nightmare is not concluded, by the way, because now she's going to go back. You know, she's already been charged in Charles in Charles' death. And, <laughs> and there might even be more stuff that comes out. And it is something that, uh, that he's going to have to, that he's going to continue to have to, this wound is going to be fresh for quite a while. And I, I think with my, um, you know, and thank God there was nobody that was on the defense, by the way, which I thought was really bizarre that there was no witnesses. I mean, I don't think it was that bizarre because I think that there was just no defense, right? Like there is no defense for this type of thing. You pretty much got him dead to rights, right? But I think that uh, one of the things to, um, you know, to bear in mind is that this is, this is going to continue to be rehashed, refreshed, old wounds, open up. They're never going to get a chance to heal. It's going to be quite a while. And my father did the same sort of thing. And even though his trial was done, he wasn't on trial for another crime or anything. He was incarcerated and was using his, his lawyers uh, to raise doubts about whether my mother's body was my mother, for example, which tormented me for years. And when all of these things came up as, as miscalculated in the autopsy, her eye color, her weight, all of these things, her hair color, even, uh, it, it wasn't even until I sit, was sitting there making my film and I was looking at the case file with detective Messmore that I just was, you know, it was just starting to sink in, but I had questioned so much of this and even to a, such a, a point that I had signed, uh, a, 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 an agreement or, or, or approval or whatever you want to call it to have my mother's body exhumed in, in the, towards the end of 1994. So they could perform a, a second autopsy on the body. And I had to go. I remember I drove with my, with my, um, adoptive father, George, uh, they're probably watching right now. Uh, we went and we gave, um, went to this place in Akron, home of LeBron James and the Black Keys, but we went to Akron and on the early morning and I gave a blood draw for DNA for the body because they were doing this. And there's a lot of things that were, that my father had brought up and said, and, and there's an episode that I have of this called Lies Caught on Tape of this program. And I have more tapes <laughs> and more lies, of course, because there are more tapes, so there are more lies. But I, I brought it up. Uh, it was an interview with my father. He had taped in prison on a radio show with a pastor, and he was just spewing sort of lie after lie, conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory about my mother's death and and all these, just grabbing at straws. And that was something that I had to go through for years and years because that is a re-traumatization. So in a way, even though my father was incarcerated, he was convicted, he was still fighting it. And I was 
you go through this period again when you're trying to cope as a child of someone who has committed such a heinous crime towards people or towards your family members that you also are thinking, am I cut from the same cloth? And these are things that you continually have to work through over and over and over again. And that is, um, and that is definitely part of your healing journey. The healing process is when you can be able to, um, it's how you process all that because he's going to go and, and, and again, if I was to talk to Colby Ryan, I would say you do whatever you want, but she's your mother. And if you feel the, that you want to talk to her and you want to understand, don't listen to anyone else but you. You know, I can give you my own inside baseball experience and everything, but, uh, I, um, I, uh, you know, I had to go through that process of anger, but ultimately deciding that again, there's a process of forgiveness that goes with a lot of this when you, so you can move on with your lives and hopefully not per perpetuate the cycle of this, because this is intergenerational trauma. This is what occurs. There is, uh, you don't want to see this passed down into your generations. You want to be able to say, Hey, the buck stops here. I'm not going to continue to perpetrate this, this type of violence or this type of uh, aggression or this, or this just bad behavior in general for me it was with my father. And I'm going to answer. Um, thank you for your sticker, uh, Kathleen Welch. Um, I will answer that question in one second. I wanted to give you acknowledgement. Um, uh, <clears throat> you have to make a decision that you're going to, and stop per, per, perpetuating this bad behavior. My father, not only is there obviously the taking the life of my mother, but there's all and, and all of his bad behavior with the with with that, and then with the crimes that he had perpetrated against my cousins on my mother's side. But also, there was uh, his bad behavior as far as how he conducted himself with women, how he conducted himself with in his relationship with my mother, uh, and how um, he mistreated people, individuals me, my mother, in terms of his temper, um, and how he was just, and, and, and this facade of a life, I forget, and I, for, I forget a lot about my father. And even in this interview that I'd given on this, this program and everybody was saying, Oh, you know, your mother put all these things in your head. I was there. I saw all of this, but I remember, and I forget to mention the fact that my father had, a whole life that he had created outside of our world. And it wasn't until, I want to say I was in high school, so a few years after he'd been convicted, maybe even college, but I was talking to someone and they, and they brought up a, a dinner that my, my family was at with their family and some other people. And my father, my father sat at dinner and told this whole story of <laughs> of being shot down in his F-14 Tomcat over the South China Sea in Vietnam and continued. Well, when he was shot down, he couldn't, his ejection seat lever for the ejection seat to eject out of the F-14 Tomcat was stuck. And so he could not safely eject the cockpit of the airplane, of the jet. <laughs> So 
the plane went down in the South China Sea and he pulled out his Bowie knife. And I mean, I believe that the plane had gone down. Either he pulled out the Bowie knife while the plane was going down and cut himself out of the cockpit, but he, but I believe the plane had landed in the water uh, at night, by the way, I believe too. Uh, and then he had cut himself out of the cockpit with his trusted, you know, naval issue Bowie knife and then swam two miles to shore. And my father had, I wish I had a photo up here. My father had, and they showed this during the trial, but he had um, photographs of him in a naval officer's white uniform with all of these uh, decorations and ribbons from medals that he had won. And if you remember at the time, this is like the late eight, the late 80s when he's telling these stories, right? Because this is before the death of my mother. But he's telling these stories. So what had come out around that time? Top Gun. So he was latching onto this Top Gun sort of fantasy. And I swear to you, my father would tell me, because Top Gun had come out, I was a kid, I was excited, right? Airplanes, I loved airplanes as a kid. I grew up the first five years of my life on a naval base in Dahlgren, Virginia, where my father worked as a doctor. And then the airplanes would land on a runway in our backyard. And I would just watch them. I loved it. I loved, I wanted to be an astronaut, fighter pilot when I was a kid. I mean, I think a lot of kids want to do that anyways, but because it's cool, right? But I was very, very excited about all of that. And my father would tell me, hey, Bumper, which was my nickname that he gave me, uh, that because I used to point to nose cones of the fire planes and call them the bumper. But he's also told me that I got that nickname because that was his quote call sign as a naval fighter pilot. Uh, uh, his call sign, um, which you all have call signs when you're talking over the, the speaker and communicating with the other pilots or the tower or military command or what have you. You use, I've never served in the military, props to those who have, thank you for your service, but you have a call sign and, and this is so-and-so, and, but he said it was bumper. So he would tell me that he found, he goes, I remember the day he came in, he goes, oh, they found my, my fighter pilot helmet. And I would ask my dad, daddy, did you get your fighter pilot helmet? Because I couldn't wait to try it on and pretend I was, you know, you know Tom Cruise and, <laughs> and Top Gun or whatever. It was still a lie he told me. Every, every time I would ask them, because of course, for those of you who have kids, I don't, but you know that when you tell them something, you put something in their head, they ask about it a lot, right? They ask about it a lot. <laughs> it becomes a focal point for them. So <laughs> I was always asking him about this, this fire pilot helmet that never existed at all. So a lot of these lies and deceptions also come into play. And this is a cycle that you, that also, when you go through this sort of trauma that you have to decide in your head, like this, the buck stops here, right? This, this, this stops right now. Kathleen Welsh to answer. Thank you for your question. Thank you for your sticker. The question is, did I ever talk to my father about him standing in the doorway, uh, in my bedroom doorway? I don't ever think you heard, heard you talk about this. So um, that's a really good question, Kathleen. I know that I did not ask him in the film. I am pretty sure I never asked him that question about standing in the doorway. I may have. I'll have to look through some letters, of course. I have 400 of them, like I said. Uh, but I never asked him uh, about the about his feet in the doorway. Um, I don't I don't believe I ever did. Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't remember it. Um, there's a lot of things I asked my father that he wasn't truthful about. Uh, and thank you so much again, Kathleen Walsh, for another little super sticker, super chat. It was definitely not like my father. Oh, thank you so much. Your mother most definitely was an amazing woman. Your father underestimated your strength and bond with your mother. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> he sure did. Uh, I, I often wonder about that too. 
And also to go back to this sort of um, topic du jour, if you will, which is, uh, again, I guess I'm getting into it, but Colby Ryan and his relationship with his mother and what that will look like. The, the, the thing is, is that um, is he will have to reconcile all of these lies and this pattern of lies and, and just how easy it was. I think that that was the thing that was so staggering for, for myself. And I think I had said in this interview, you know, I, I up until my father asked me to tell, uh, to tell my mother to lie to my mother about his girlfriend, I never told a lie. Well, I mean, that's probably a bit hyperbolic. I'm sure I fibbed and lied about a lot of things, but something like that, lying about my father telling me to lie about his girlfriend, that it was a big deal. So, um, sometimes kids, uh, sometimes kids can be hyperbolic, but, uh, I, um, uh, he's going to have to to sort of wade through all that BS of of those cobwebs that he's going to have to like clear out of the back of his psyche and the back of his family history to be able to um, to process what his mother put everyone through and to understand that y- you have to come to this understanding that that's not you. That's not what the process you're going to take. That's not you. That's not who you are. So Colby has to unpack all of that. And then to address some of y'all's comments uh, from before, I love how you guys just, I'm just in here talking and I wonder if the bumper story is true. Well, I'll show you something. Um, yeah. And, and NPD love to dupe. Yeah, that's for sure. But I do remember my mother also admitting this. In fact, check this out. So I actually still have this. My father had these made. <laughs> uh, I guess when I was younger, when I was a kid. But um, this is a California. He had a bunch of these, like Florida or whatever. But I somehow ended up with this. I don't know why. But it's kind of ironic that it's a California. This is like a fake plastic license plate. This is bumper which I thought was kind of a, what was that for, um, foretelling? Would that be, is that the right, is that the right word? Foreshadowing what my, what my life would end up being like? But there you go. Um, and I have that on my little tchotchke self behind me, uh, shelf behind me, which one of these days we'll, we'll have to get to. And I'll have to share all that with you guys because it's kind of interesting. I got like so much stuff. It's not even funny. But, you know, I do this on my um, on my uh, live meet and greets that I do through my Patreon. For those of you that are Patreon supporters, please uh, check it out. For those of you who want to join, I do monthly uh, meet and greets with y'all where we're all on video. We all talk. We do it over Zoom or Google Meet and everybody gets to interact. And it's really fun, actually. Like, like you guys are interacting here, but you get to see each other. You get to interact. It's very cool. And I usually just kind of unpack some stuff that I have around the house and interesting things. Um, I'm going to take a sip of water. And this is a product placement shot. This is the Marisol mug, Marisol Super Chi mug. I believe this is the 15 ounce. Coffee with Collier Coffee Club is going to come, and we're going to have decaf, as requested, some decaf blends as well. But that'll be coming soon. Um, but anyways, shameless, sorry, shameless self-promotion. And uh, to be honest with you, the stuff that I have in the store, um, Marisol stuff sells way more than mine, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. Everybody loves my soul. Um, so back to what I was saying. So uh, since we're delving in this Colby Ryan thing, so there's a whole other side of all of this that that you know, and in, 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 like these comments that come in. They said, "I don't know if I would want to go near a prison." Yeah, like just to be quite honest, and for 
it's something I also like to explain for those of you guys uh, <clears throat> that may or may not know. So, and something I'm like really passionate about telling people and just being straight up with you, you guys do. Does everyone understand what the difference is between jail and prison? And I, I mean this totally very seriously. I'm not being condescending. A lot of people will use these terms, um, uh, interchange will interchange these to use these these terms as if they're interchangeable and they're not jail implies when you get arrested, you go to jail and you're getting out. Okay. So you get, you go get out on bail or they're holding you until your trial or whatever. And then if you get exonerated, you're prison, you're not getting out until a specific time. Like prison is like lock, throw away the key. Right. The, 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 um, jail is not that, <laughs> you know, jail is, you know, get out or you get out on bail. So just to be very clear of the differences between that, because sometimes people think they're one and the same and it's definitely not J prison has a finality to it for sure. Uh, but one of the things is that he's, if he does decide to have this relationship with his mother and he does go to prison to see her is I believe that she's going to this, um, I believe she's going to this uh, Pocatello women's correctional facility, which is, I believe one of the toughest uh, women's correctional facilities in the United States, which is in, um, which is in Idaho, I believe. Yeah. I believe it's in Idaho. Um, you know, that's no joke. And prison is scary. Like prison is terrifying because even if you're, you know, you have to understand too that Colby goes in there and again with all of this past history that he's going to have to get get out of shake somehow. I had to do it too. Is when you go in there, you feel like a criminal, even though you're not a criminal, you feel like a criminal. They just have this way of just creating this anxiety inside of you when you walk into a prison. And you're going through the 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 processing, and you've got to give your ID. You have to answer questions. You then have to sit. You then have to this and that. You can't take this in. You got to oh, do you have anything in your pockets? You go through the metal detectors. They might patch you down. They search through your stuff. You know you got to have, and you got to have a whole process too. And I don't. I'm assuming that now things have changed since the last time I was there, which was seven years ago. But you know, I would normally bring change because you can only bring change. But now they have key cards that you can use to put money on cars. But all these things cost an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, it costs money to load these cards to be able to get things out of the vending machines. It costs money to put everything. Talk about transactional. Everything in the incarceration system is 100% transactional. And there is a fee for everything. There is a uh, there is a website called JPay, which is how you can interact with inmates. So I'm sure he'll have to, happen to use JPay if they allow it in the state of Idaho. So he'll also communicate because there's only a certain amount of companies that deal with all of this because of all the stuff that goes into it, the background checks and the things of that nature. So, uh, but it's, everybody has their hand out, right? It's very true. It is a, the prison industrial complex does exist in this country is a very real thing, but I won't get into that right now, but they can get things as uh, like uh, tablets that look like iPads, but they're not iPads or JPay players or J players. I got my father one. You can watch videos and all this stuff, but even things of that nature, like, They'll, they'll have access to this, but again, everything is very expensive. So if something costs 99 cents in the iTunes store, you can better believe it costs 250 in the JPay store. It's, it's extraordinary. But <clears throat> he's going to be able to, he's going to have to come and get used to that whole 
way of of seeing his mother and dealing with his mother, which is you know going in and you get the card, you get this, you go through the security, and then you have to think of two, is that when I would go in there, you know, my father's case was very high profile in Ohio. <clears throat> Sorry. My father's case was very high profile in Ohio. Lori Vallow's case is very high profile in, I don't know, the country, if not the world. Everybody for the entirety of her life in prison, whatever that looks like, they always will know. Every single person that comes into that prison is going to know who she is or is going to be told who she is because somebody will bring the new, the, the new fish in and say, oh, that's the woman. Remember that woman that killed her kids? In the hunt? That's her. You live under that. Just like when I would go into the prison and they would say, oh, that's, you know, that's Doc's son. That's, the, that, that's Doc's kid. That's the kid that testified against Doc or that's the kid. And sometimes people look at you because they don't like that. And sometimes people look at you because they judge you for that. That's what Colby Ryan's going to experience. All the eyeballs looking at you, everybody looking you up and down, security guard after security guard. And are they thinking, you know, for me, I was very empathetic. Like, are they thinking that I could do something like this? Could I do something like this? Am I here? Are they going to, you even get anxiety, which is completely based in no sense of reality whatsoever, but your own perception of that reality, which is that you might end up getting stuck in there. You might not be able to leave and get in your car at the end of the day, at the end of the visitation and get out of there. You, you might, you might get stuck there as a guest. I'm telling you, I know it sounds crazy. You just go through my head all the time. Like, what if I got stuck? in in these things in, in one of these places like it's it's absolutely terrifying and something that you know i've heard many people say uh is that you know when someone when someone like a loved one is in prison that the people that are outside in prison are in prison with them as well there's a lot of that there's a lot of you know you have mothers and, and brothers and sisters and fathers and, and that have children who are incarcerated who who part of them is taken by that, right? It's no different for what I experienced with my father. It's no different what what Colby Ryan's gonna experience with his mother. I uh <clears throat> I feel like I feel like he, you know, he has to come to this place of understanding that just because this person carried you in their womb and you are a product of them doesn't necessarily mean that that what they did could ever translate to you and that is so easier said than done that is so that takes so much work that's a you know we want to say go to better help i don't know if better help can even help you with that that is going to take so much work and compassion and understanding and compassion from his other relatives. I've been through it. It sucks, man. It sucks. Everybody's going to know who you are for the rest of your life for all the wrong reasons. I saw that Colby had been <clears throat> arrested and recently released. Uh, charges were dropped, but he was engaged in the choice. Like he has a very unique opportunity to and again this is really this is really tough stuff to this is my take having been through this look i go through i have been through all of this so you guys my audience don't have to 
straight up. I've developed this this sense of understanding how these things work in in crime and in true crime and 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 how all this plays out because I've lived it. This cannot unravel him. Colby Ryan, you can't let this unravel you because it will if you're not careful. You know, you have to you have to understand that this cannot unravel you, but this also can stop with you. This doesn't have to continue. You can make these better choices. You know what right and wrong is. You know what your mother did wasn't wasn't right. You knew that. You were calling her out on that, as many other people were. You testified against her. You know that. Don't let it unravel you. It's not worth it. It's not worth it, man. Keep your side of the street clean. I implore you. Try to be a good person which I'm sure you are. Try to keep it, try to keep it cool, man. Um, that's all I got for Colby Ryan. That's my take on that. It's tough stuff. It's tough stuff. It's a hard road to hoe. And uh, people, people, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's easier said than done. It took me a long time to get there. A long time to get there. A little bit of better help too. Not gonna lie. Uh, it took me a long time to get there. Check out our new podcast, uh, Tara Newell and I have, uh, it's called Survivor Squad. Also, uh, Tara Newell and I are doing coaching workshops uh, for trauma survivors and for better relationships. If she is here, she should put that in the comments below. That will be, uh, I will put a link to that in the show description of today's episode for you guys to check out. Uh, but yes, we are doing, um, we are, we are doing as Survivor Squad, we are doing coaching sessions for better relationships and also for uh, healing through trauma, working through trauma, moving past trauma, if you will. These will be on Saturday, I believe, June 20th. Don't quote me, but uh, they will be coming up in the Saturday in late June. And uh, you guys can check all those out. So um, I want to say thank you to everyone, all my Patreon supporters, all my channel members here on YouTube. Thank you all so much for joining the program. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash collierlandry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright, Collier Landry.